You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 6th episode of Season 8. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. About 7% of all humans who have ever lived are alive today. That's some mad population growth right there if you really think about it. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. There's always going to be someone with a bigger toy than yours. Daniel Craig said that, James Bond. This week's case was suggested by a listener who wants to remain anonymous. We're in the West Yorkshire town of Meltham this week, a place very close to home for me personally. I lived there for three years back in my uni days. I worked at the Morrison supermarket there for six years and many of my friends used to or still live there. Here are five more quickfire facts about Meltham. Number one. Some scenes of long-running BBC sitcom Last of the Summer Wine and ITV drama Where the Heart Is used some Meltham houses as characters' homes. Number two, each year Meltham hosts a 1940s wartime weekend called Meltham Memories. Everyone dresses up in World War II outfits and a spitfire usually passes overhead a few times. It's quite a good weekend. Number three, Meltham Mills was the former site of Jonas Brook and Brothers, a silk mill complex that employed over a thousand workers during the late 19th century. Number four, Meltham Mills was also the former base of the David Brown Tractors Factory, which opened in 1939 and closed operations on the site in 1988. Meltham Mills does get another mention in this episode, so keep that in the back of your mind. And number five, Meltham is home to the Meltham and Meltham Mills Band, which was established in 1846 as a brass band. They became the first band to win the British Open title for three consecutive years, a fee only matched by five others. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Meltham is 9,108. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. This week's story begins in what is referred to as the me decade, the 1970s. I've heard of the roaring 20s and the swinging 60s, but that nickname for the 70s is a new one on me. Early on in that decade, this episode's villain was in a long-term relationship with a woman called Carol. Our villain goes by the name Kenneth Bill, and he was born in roughly 1949, a year before Carol. The couple spent half a decade together and things were looking like they were going to last forever until one deal-breaking conversation took place. The topic was marriage. Carol wanted it. Kenneth had no interest. Sticking to her guns, Carol insisted that if Kenneth was not prepared to get married, their relationship may as well end because to her it was non-negotiable. Kenneth didn't budge, so Carol left him. The decision wasn't easy by any means. Carol described her time spent with Kenneth during those five years as fun and recalled her former lover being a man who was generous to a fault. With Carol instigating the split, Kenneth was left in an unenviable position. The woman of his dreams had walked out on him and he struggled to get over it. Based on the research I've done, it doesn't seem as if he ever got over it. Kenneth did go on to father three children, I assume to the same woman, 
but I can't say for sure. So he did seemingly find love again in some capacity, but nobody he met would ever live up to Carol in his eyes. Carol, on the other hand, eventually got her wish granted when she married a man named John Hay in around 1976. Born on November 4th, 1950, John was raised in the Huddersfield village of Almondbury, where he attended Almondbury High School. John was a well-behaved child and rarely, if ever, got into any bother, something he could attribute to his solid upbringing. As John grew into adulthood, he began pursuing a career in the police force and went on to join West Yorkshire Police. His career as a police officer led to John transitioning into the role of a traffic officer, where interestingly he became George Oldfield's driver. George Oldfield was a West Yorkshire police detective who finished his career as an assistant chief constable. You may know him as the man that led the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry in the mid to late 70s. John Hay was responsible for driving George Oldfield to North East England, specifically Sunderland, when John Samuel Humble's Wearside Jack hoax tape was being investigated as part of the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. John and Carol met whilst the former was in the police and they soon started a family of their own, as had Kenneth Bill. They welcomed a daughter named Louise and a son named John, after his dad, to the world. Unfortunately, John's time with West Yorkshire Police was cut short prematurely after an accident while he was off duty. He was medically discharged from the force and decided to pursue his interest in all things DIY. John had always been a keen builder in his spare time outside of work, but now he had a chance to turn his hobby into a profession, which is exactly what he did. As John and Carol approached their golden years, they lived in a place called Fenny Bridge, another small Huddersfield village located a couple of miles east of Almondbury. With his endearing personality and huge 6 foot 4 inch frame, John was known throughout the market town. His striking white hair, signature white moustache and white van were recognised by many. John soon made the step up from being a father to being a grandfather, and let me tell you, his grandkids were his absolute world. With Carol by his side, John would take the grandkids up to scenic Northumberland, and would even sometimes venture abroad with them to the Canary Islands. John enjoyed nothing more than dropping his granddaughter off at school every morning. It gave him such pleasure and made him proud as punch. It saddens me to inform you that, in all likelihood, John's granddaughter was likely the last family member to see him alive. Our key chain of events began in October 2011. It was during that month that Kenneth Bill randomly bumped into his old flame, Carol. A brief stop and chat occurred, but as far as Carol knew, that was the end of the encounter. She had long since moved on from Kenneth and was now a happily married woman to her husband John. What Carol did not realise was that the brief encounter with her old flame ignited a spark that relit the embers of old. Kenneth's previously numbed feelings towards Carol suddenly rushed back to the surface and was so unbearable that he began stalking her. After some time spent observing his ex from afar, Kenneth and Carol would go on to meet up again. Old feelings then began to rise within Carol, one thing led to another, and the two began an affair. Carol would later say that she had no intention of ever leaving her husband for Kenneth. She was happy being married to John, but the excitement of a brief few months of rekindling with her ex was clearly too much to resist. Kenneth, on the other hand, didn't view it as casually as Carol did. He wanted the couple's relationship to commence where it had left off over three decades earlier. Kenneth floated the idea to Carol of him renting a bungalow nearby so that if she ever had an argument with John or felt like she needed to get away for a night or two, she could stay there with him. The term used to describe the bungalow was bolt hole, 
which, like the me decade, is a term I've never heard before. With the bungalow idea going down like a lead balloon, Kenneth upped the ante and asked Carol to move in with him outright. Kenneth lived at Upper Hag Road in the Homeferth village of Thongsbridge, six miles southwest of Fennybridge. If, by any chance, you're giggling at the name Thongsbridge, there's also two villages nearby called Upper Thong and Nether Thong. Thong simply means strip of land, so Upper Thong is the higher portion and Nether Thong is the lower portion. There are plenty of weird place names in Huddersfield and Home Firth. Bringing the story back to Kenneth, it seems like he was being a bit intense with Carol during the affair. Carol would later say, I felt he was hounding me all the time. I wanted to say something to stop him hounding me. To do that, Carol said all the right things when it came to agreeing to live with Kenneth or regarding the bolt hole idea, but she had no intention of following through with any of her promises. As Christmas 2011 approached, Kenneth was continuing to hound Carol by sending her text messages in which he explained how obsessed he was with her and that she drove him nuts. He also reportedly attempted to send Carol a rather inappropriate Christmas present, perhaps something from Anne Summers, which she declined to accept. Three months into their affair, in February 2012, Carol told Kenneth they would no longer be seeing each other. For Kenneth, it was the mid-70s all over again. His one true love had once again broken it off with him, and he could not get his head around why. He was loving, complimentary, affectionate, kind. Why on earth did Carol want to stay with her husband instead of continuing her old life with him? That was the question that plagued Kenneth the most and is what ultimately led to him becoming a murderer. Carol said of the affair, He told me that he loved me, that he'd never stopped loving me, and that we should never have split up. For Kenneth, the problem was John. If he was out of the picture, Kenneth and Carol could have their fairy tale life together. In a bizarre move that sheds a huge light on the mental effect all of this was having on Kenneth, he decided to type a letter. The intended recipient was John Hay, Carol's husband. John had no idea who Kenneth was, by the way. He'd never met him and didn't even know he existed. Kenneth had a proposal that he wanted John to consider, a three-way relationship. Here's a summary of the letter Kenneth wrote for John. John, I am writing this not to tell you that Carol and I have been seeing each other since last October and she was going to move into a bungalow with me after Christmas. I am writing to ask you to tell her that you won't mind if she sees me occasionally. I hope you will be able to let her carry on seeing me occasionally, as I am sure this will give her the best of both worlds. I want her to be happy, and I am sure you do too. She deserves it, don't you think? If you decide that you don't want her to see me again, please don't mention this letter to her. Just look after her and keep her safe. K. Once typed, Kenneth handed the letter to Carol and asked her to pass it on to John. Rather than doing so, Carol shredded the letter. Here's where the story gets dark. Kenneth had begun brainstorming ideas about how he could remove John from the picture so that he could have Carol all to himself. Some of his work colleagues recalled him asking some not-suitable-for-work questions about the possibility of dissolving a human body in a barrel of sulfuric acid. Kenneth would challenge his colleagues to pick out flaws in his theoretical murder plans, with the intended victim being his ex-partner's husband. None of Kenneth's colleagues took him seriously, which I think is pretty understandable given the circumstances, so his behaviour wasn't reported to the police. As the transition from fantasy to reality became ever closer, Kenneth sent Carol an ultimatum over text. If she didn't leave John and begin a new relationship with Kenneth, he would either kill himself, kill John, 
or tell John about their three-month affair. It doesn't state anywhere what Carol's response to that threat was, so we may as well jump ahead to March 13th, 2012. Kenneth phoned John and left a voicemail. Speaking with a mouthful of marbles to disguise his voice, Kenneth said his name was Eric Johnson and he had some work John may be interested in at Meltham Mills Industrial Estate. Kenneth had a unit at the industrial estate just off Huddersfield Road, near the centre of Meltham. The following day, March 14th, John returned Kenneth's call to inquire about what work he was referring to. Kenneth said he wanted some building work pricing up, so the pair agreed to meet at Kenneth's industrial unit the following day. When John arrived at the unit on March 15th, 2012, the man he shook hands with was, to him, a complete stranger. To Kenneth, this was the man standing in the way of a happy life with his soulmate. Soon after the meeting, Kenneth led John inside the unit, locked the door, and beat him to death. Kenneth then used duct tape to bind John's arms and legs before placing his body inside a large canvas builder's bag. He then used a horse box to transport John's body to his home in Thongsbridge. It was there where Kenneth lit the fire that would be used to burn John's body. After a day and a half, Kenneth placed John's burnt remains and ashes into several bags and disposed of them at a local recycling centre. It's worth noting here that, to this day, no pieces of John's body have ever been recovered. Once all of the bags had been disposed of, Kenneth still had the problem of John's white van to deal with. Naturally, the builder had driven it to the industrial estate to meet Kenneth. His plan was simple. He'd drive John's van to the Humber Bridge near Hull, East Yorkshire, and abandon it there. He'd then launch John's mobile phone into the River Humber and make his way home. There was a flaw in his plan, though. Kenneth caught a train from Hull to Huddersfield and didn't count on being caught by the train carriage's CCTV cameras. When John was reported missing, the police used the country's plethora of ANPR cameras to track his van's movements. They led the police to the Humber Bridge, exactly where Kenneth had dumped the van. On the journey across to Hull, John's phone was constantly pinging the cell towers along the way. When news of John's disappearance became known to the local community, Kenneth tried to convince his family that he had likely chosen to take his own life. That would have been such an out-of-character thing for John to do, though. He simply loved his family too much to do anything like that. Alarm bells began ringing at that point. On March 19th, 2012, four days after murdering John Hay, Kenneth Bill was arrested by West Yorkshire Police. The evidence against him having something to do with John's disappearance was overwhelming, but it didn't stop Kenneth from initially denying he'd ever met John. His story soon changed and John's death was confirmed, but Kenneth insisted he had fallen down some stairs and hit his head. He did not admit to having murdered John and would not plead guilty to the subsequent murder charge he faced. During his murder trial in the autumn of 2012, it came to light that Kenneth had stopped off in a local cafe near the Humber Bridge after abandoning John's white van. The conversation that took place was one the cafe's owner remembered vividly. Kenneth asked how many people chose to jump off the suspension bridge as he planned to make John's disappearance look like a suicide. The trial took place at Bradford Crown Court and concluded on September 20th, 2012 when the jury of seven women and five men returned to the courtroom after deliberating for between two and three hours. They unanimously found Kenneth Bill guilty of murdering John Hay. The following day, September 21st, 2012, Judge Peter Benson handed Kenneth a life sentence with a minimum term of 22 years. No emotion was shown by Kenneth as his sentence was passed. Judge Benson said in his closing statement, It seems to me that you were obsessed with Mrs. Hay and you ruthlessly, in a detailed way, 
carried out this murder and then ruthlessly and cold-bloodedly disposed of your victim's body. You were so keen to indulge your own emotions that you carried out this wicked murder. Not only did you murder him, but by disposing of his body in the cold-hearted way you did, you have robbed his family of the chance of giving him a decent burial. In a statement released after sentencing, the Hay family said that they were pleased it was over and that they had got justice for their beloved John. And that was the story of British murderer Kenneth Bill. Thanks again, anonymous listener, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Alex left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great Podcast. It reads, This podcast is amazing and it's great if you like true crime, but not the overdramatics that others, mainly US, provide. Stuart is easy to listen to and weirdly, he looks exactly like he sounds. What a terrifying review. Ali Q left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Hey from Texas. Should have said howdy, surely. It reads, Finally getting around to writing a review and just wanted to say I love your podcast. I listened every day at work till I got caught up on all the seasons. Guess I'm obsessed. It's fascinating hearing about crimes outside the US and I truly enjoy the episodes with special guests and other podcasters. Like so many others have said, I also love the accent. My sister lives in the UK and I probably have just forgotten, but found any cases near Cambridge? Keep up the awesome work. I've added a Cambridge case to my list, I'll find one nearer the time. Mike from Dudley left a 5 star review on Apple Podcast UK titled Top Tier. It reads, I recently stumbled across this podcast. I've started from season 1, I'm currently on season 3, listening via Spotify. Honestly, it's such a refreshing podcast. Stuart engages the listeners so well, so factual and knowledgeable. Such an easy listen for any true crime lover. And Joe left a 5 star review on BritishMurders.com titled Fab Podcast. It reads, Stuart is like my son telling me a scary true story, lol. Great format, love the style of this podcast. I listen to every episode and look forward to it every time. Thank you for entertaining an old lady. Best wishes. Thank you Alex, Ali, Mike and Joe for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members Max Greenwood and Loretta Karim. Thank you T.S. Crosby for recently buying me five beers at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. The message left was, Hi Stu, stumbled across your podcast and been binge listening ever since. Just finished season four. Simply love it. Your accent makes it all the better along with a well-told script. My heart melts at welcome to Daddy Facts and love the Pee-wee story with Bobby. Made me giggle. I could go on. It would be great to get a shout out then hear it when I have caught up. Keep it up. Your ace. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. And that does it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.